0: Psalm 34 begins with these words. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all, Him out of them all. He guards all of His bones, not one of them is broken. Every evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let's see, we got Exodus 9 today, verses 22 through 35. This is the plague of hail, part two. So Exodus 9, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will spread my hands to the Lord with the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart and he he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Today we're going to finish the second plague which fell upon the land of Egypt. It is the first plague which explicitly mentions that men will die because of it. But it is also a plague which came with advanced warning so that the word of the Lord could be heeded. At the time of the Babylonian invasion, Habakkuk asked the Lord to remember mercy in the midst of wrath, and maybe he was thinking of how the Lord dealt with Egypt so many years earlier. As we think on these plagues, we have to remember that the Lord had purposed to multiply his wonders in Egypt before Pharaoh would relent and let them go. Everything he has done has been orchestrated to meet this goal, but for what purpose is he doing this? Is it a perverse sense of vindictive joy that he's getting from this continued pummeling of land and people? The answer is no. There is a specific goal which we have been seeing and will continue to see. And not only is it a lesson from ancient times for us to remember, but it is a lesson for the future for those who do not remember. The reason for the plagues is mentioned explicitly in Numbers chapter 33, and it is our text verse for today. It's Numbers 33, verse 4. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. It was only about 860 years since the flood of Noah, and yet Egypt had completely forgotten the true God and had devolved into idol worship. They had gods for this, and they had gods for that, and they worshiped the created rather than the creator. And so the Lord brought judgment upon those false gods. The same has occurred time and time and time again throughout history, including upon wayward Israel. When we turn from the Lord, he will execute judgment to correct the problem. It's an especially important lesson for the world right now. A time of tribulation is coming because we have rejected Jesus Christ, who is the greatest evidence of all concerning the work of God, all right? Soon enough, he will come for those who are his faithful and the world will be plunged into judgment. It will be on all of the false gods we worship. It'll be on sex, perversion, money, technology, Allah, Krishna, Buddha, fame, fortune, personal glory, global warming. The list goes on and on and on. We're giving these stories of the past to show us what lies ahead. So let's pay heed to them. And let's humble our hearts before the Lord who is revealed in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. As usual, I have three thoughts for you today. The first is destruction in Egypt, safety in Goshen. This is verses 22 through 26. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. In the previous verses, the Lord gave Pharaoh the exact time that he would accomplish the miracle of the plague of hail. In both the warning and in the delay, he granted mercy on those who would choose to heed his word. Now that time has arrived and there would be no more delay. This is very similar then to the terminology which is coming in the end times. In Revelation chapter 10, we read this concerning the judgment which would ensue at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Like this angel of the future, Moses of the past is told to stretch out his hand toward heaven. However, in the next verse, we will see that Moses actually stretches out his rod meaning the rod of God toward heaven. The hand here is being used as the principal cause, whereas the rod is being used as the instrumental cause. Thus, there is no contradiction. Rather, it's an acknowledgement of the power of the Lord in the hand of Moses. And the action of stretching out toward heaven is fitting because this is where the plague will issue from. In the first two plagues, Aaron stretched out the rod over the waters where the blood and the frogs came. In the third plague, it was on the dust of the ground from whence the lice came. The action is suited to the plague, which is precipitated by the action. Verse 22 continues, That there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout all of the land of Egypt. In verse 19, last week, it said this, Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. What was obvious, but what was unstated at that time, was that the herb of the field would be struck as well. This is now added in to what is said. The word translated here as herb is the word esev. It means properly grass. From this, the idea of any fresh and springy herbs of pasturage is implied. Other plants are mentioned in the coming verses, which will further describe the devastation which lies ahead. However, this word is being used to describe everything in a general sense. The word Eseb was first found in the Bible in Genesis 1, verse 11, all the way on the first page of the Bible. After this, it was mentioned five more times in the early Genesis account, but it hasn't been used again until now. The last time it was used was in Genesis 3:18, and here's what it said. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb, the assev of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. For about 2,500 years of history, nothing is mentioned concerning the general plant life in this way. And yet now... The very plant life given to man after the fall is going to be involved in the plague upon Egypt. Therefore, we can see the Lord's attack on three more of the false gods of Egypt in this one verse. Nut, the sky goddess, will be shown as false. Osiris, the god of crops and fertility, will be shown as false. And Set, the god of storms, will be shown as false. It is the Lord who created, and it is the Lord who controls how these things are used, how they're wielded it, and how they're destroyed. Whereas the Egyptians worship the created, Jehovah now shows them that he is the creator. We should note that he will do this in a marvelous way. Hailstorms normally cover very small areas of land, such as a mile or so in distance and no more. This storm, however, would cover everything throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 23, and Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, In compliance with the word of the Lord, it is Moses again, like in the previous plague of boils, who acts. He apparently has lost the timidity that he once had, and instead of working through Aaron, he has now assumed the responsibility for the actions himself. Verse 23 going on. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. The word for thunder here is kolot. It literally means voices. When a person speaks, they use their voice. When a trumpet blows, that is its voice. And when a lion roars, the roar is his voice. In this verse, the voices are thunder, but the symbolism is clear. The voices are being used as a demonstration of the work of the Lord. And this is beautifully represented in the 18th Psalm where it says these words, the Lord thundered from heaven and the most high uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Along with the majestic display of voices came more terror. It says, "Va'tihelech literally, and the fire walked upon the earth. Scholars look at these words with several possible meanings. One is that it means ball lightning. It's a phenomenon where lightning literally rolls upon the ground. Although possible, because the storm of this magnitude would be very heavily charged with electricity, this is probably not the intent here. The meaning is explained in the 78th Psalm, which I will quote in just a couple of verses. Another view is that it is lightning descending from heaven to earth, thus fire darted to the ground. Adam Clark seems to analyze it best when he says these words. It was not a sudden flash of lightning, but a devouring fire walking through every part, destroying both animals and vegetables, and its progress was irresistible. In other words, the walking upon the ground is the movement of the lightning along with the movement of the storm. It isn't ball lightning that's rolling on the ground, but rather it is lightning descending as if it were literally legs in a storm. And the effect would have been extreme and it would have been extremely terrifying. Verse 23 going on, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. There's an emphasis in these words by repeating the thought of the hail once again. It is noted that thunderstorms are not frequent in the lower and central parts of Egypt, but they do happen from time to time. If there is hail associated with them, it's normally not in any considerable amount at all. The emphasis is given to show that this storm was unique. It was everywhere and it was hugely destructive as we continue to see. Verse 24, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. The words here, if you were to translate them directly, would not make any sense to us at all. It literally reads like this. There was hail, and in the midst of the hail, a fire infolding itself. To understand this verse better, the same terminology is used in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4 when speaking of the whirlwind which accompanied the presence of the Lord. There it says these words. Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. So what is probably being described in this storm in Egypt is an absolute chaos of lightning flashing in every single direction and everywhere at all times. It would have been an unqualified marvel to behold, especially considering its uniqueness. Verse 24 going on, So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This implies a natural plague, even though its timing was predicted in advance, and despite it being greater than any other such occurrence which had ever come before. The Lord was working through the elements in a majestic way in order to demonstrate his surpassing greatness in comparison to these false gods of Egypt. In regard to the plague there, it was like none other before it. That's how the the Bible describes it there. There was none like it ever. This then is being tied to the claim made in Exodus 9, verse 14, which said this, At this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The Lord has sent a plague of hail like none other to show that there is none like him anywhere in all of the earth. Verse 25, And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Now we have to note this again. I've said this in previous plagues. I've got to say it again. Not every every in the Bible means every and not all alls in the Bible mean all. There is a hyperbole being used here to show the immense magnitude of what occurred. We can know this with absolute assurance because of what it says in the very next chapter. In Exodus 10 verse 12 it says this, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land All that the hail has left. The land was crushed in an extraordinary way by the plague of hail, and therefore the superlative words all and every are used to highlight this. The devastation is described in Psalm 78, where it says these words He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and the flocks to the fiery lightning. Verse 26 Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Even if the storm was natural, the supernatural elements of advanced time, and notice, and locality are all highlighted. The storm was everywhere in Egypt, with just one exception, Goshen. And this is the last time that this location will be used by name in the Bible. It'll never be mentioned again. The meaning of the name of Goshen is drawing near or approaching. Based on Pharaoh's response to the horrendous plague, it is apparent that the name Goshen is being used specifically to show that the end of Israel's time of bondage is drawing near. A noted distinction has been made from where the Israelites were and with the rest of Egypt. Even though Pharaoh will again change his mind, there's a marked difference in how he now responds to the events which have unfolded before his eyes and the understood distinction between Egypt and Israel woe to the land whose king won't heed the lord who works contrary to what is just and right woe to him who rejects his sacred word and who harasses god's people day and night upon him shall come terror fire and hail upon him will come the wrath of the almighty god he and his subjects will mourn and wail for the destruction will be in every place they trod but mercy is found in the lord as well when the leader of a nation will repent and turn he will save himself from the clutches of hell where the terrifying eternal fire does burn. Our second thought today, I have sinned this time. Verses 27 through 30. Verse 27, and Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. In these words, there is attrition, but not contrition. Pharaoh has had pressure steadily applied on him and his kingdom by the Lord, and he has now reached a breaking point. Thus, he acknowledges that he has been in fault with the words, I have sinned. This is the point of attrition. But the repentance is only skin deep at this point, and there is no true contrition. Thus, the words this time. He has been terrified by the majestic display. Death has been involved, and extensive harm has come to his kingdom. But it can only go so far as to acknowledge limited guilt. The translators of the Geneva Bible state his condition very well. Here's what they say. The wicked confess their sins to their condemnation, but they cannot believe to obtain remission. Verse 27 goes on. The Lord is righteous. In these words is finally found a direct answer to Pharaoh's question, which comes from all the way back in Exodus chapter 5. He asked this, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. With his own mouth, he now answers his own question. Jehovah ha Sadiq. Jehovah is the righteous. The word contains a definite article, making it emphatic. And in contrast to this, verse 27 goes on, and my people and I are wicked. Ve'ani, ve'ami ha reshaim. And I and my people are the wicked. It is again emphatic. The words, though, cannot be separated from the previous verse, which said this. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. The plague was terrifying, but it is not only the plague that has convinced Pharaoh. It is the separation between Egypt and Goshen which has prompted his pronouncement. Yehovah is contrasted to Pharaoh, and the Israelites are contrasted to Pharaoh's people where he previously accused them of being idle and looking for excuses to get out of their work he now acknowledges that their requests were valid and that their words were true this is the force and the intent of the words that he now utters israel is the people of the lord and the lord is the righteous verse 28 entreat the lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail for it is enough there's a lot to consider here first Pharaoh has now recognized the Lord as God. He now acknowledges that Moses is the Lord's designated mediator by asking him to entreat the Lord. Secondly, Pharaoh implies that he is exceedingly fearful of the Lord because he places the thunder before the hail in his request. The term in Hebrew is kolot Elohim, literally the voices of God. In other words, he has tied the Lord, the voices, and his deity into one thought. And this is similar to the words that are found in Revelation chapter 10, where the words thunder and voice are used to describe the exact same thing. Here's what it says. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, the seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Pharaoh was so fearful of the raging thunder that he could only see it as comparable to the very voice of God. Only after recognizing this does he note the plague of hail, which was to actually be the main substance of the plague. But to Pharaoh, the place where the hail came from was also the place from whence the voices issued. Verse 28 continues, I will let you go and you shall no longer stay. The word here is pronounced. The fear of God finally forced Pharaoh to state release without any conditions at all. The fact that he changes his mind later does not negate the absolute fear that he now displays at the events which he has beheld. However, it does show a common trait among people. Tell me this doesn't match people you know when things get better. We quickly forget the promises we made when they were bad. Verse 29, so Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. It has to be noted that Moses was both called to and left from Pharaoh's palace during the plague of hail. Pharaoh is the one who cowered inside and sent out for his relief rather than going out to Moses to beg for it. However, Moses came through the storm unharmed. As Matthew Henry notes, peace with God makes men thunderproof. <laughs> Moses not only goes out from the from the uh, palace to end the plague, but all the way out of the city. Only then does he promise to spread out his hands to the Lord. In this, it shows his complete confidence in his own safety and so it is an implied rebuke to Pharaoh. In essence, you cower in your palace, and yet I am safe throughout the land. And as a curiosity that should not be missed, he uses a different word here for spread, which is the word paras than what was used to initiate the plague, which was nata, translated as stretch. This is the very first time that the word paras is used in the Bible. To stretch out then is implying the initiation of the action under divine authority. However, the spreading out is an appeal or a petition for it to end. Another point is that Moses says he will spread out his palm, not his hand. In scripture, this word paras is used with the word palm 13 times and with the word hand 5 times. How the verb is used always indicates whether the word palm or whether the word hand will be used with one exception in the Bible. And that is found in Isaiah chapter 15. See if you can figure out what the Lord is trying to teach us. It says in Isaiah 115, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. In this verse in Isaiah, it says the people spread out their palms, actually. The translation is not correct. But then it says that their hands are full of blood. What we can learn from this word paras, when used in conjunction with prayer, is that the unfolding of the hand for prayer is to be pure, and that when we pray, our palms are to be open and undefiled. In other words, the open hand before the Lord is metaphorically a symbol of earnestness, purity, honest petition, and submission. This is what Moses will now offer to the Lord, open palms of petition. This action will have two specific purposes. The first is to petition for the ending of the plague, as he has promised, and this will reflect on the Lord because he is the Lord's messenger. It also has the purpose of making Pharaoh realize that the earth is the Lord's. This pronouncement is in direct contrast to the Egyptian belief where each of their gods cared for a particular thing, like the weather, or the crops, or the waters, or the sun, and so on, and so on. Instead, Moses is showing that everything belongs to the Lord. He is not a God, but the God. His power is one, and it is universal. To demonstrate this, the plague came by Jehovah's hand, and it will end at his hand as well. However, there will still be a void, a very faulty void, in Pharaoh's theology. Verse 30, But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Pharaoh and his servants have the kind of fear that is noted in James. The demons are said to believe that there is one God, and this makes them tremble. But there's no reverence for him. Only when such fear is united with reverence and love can the true fear of the Lord be understood. This is still lacking in these people. To enhance what he means, Moses uses the term Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God. It is the same term which is used at the very, very, very beginning of the Bible in the creation account. It is Jehovah Elohim who created the heavens and the earth and as this is so, he alone is God and he alone is to be feared. The Lord is the first and the last also is he. He is the creator and there is no other God. When we acknowledge him alone, pleased he will be. Let our hearts be pure and let our feet on the holy path trod. He was there when the pillars of the earth found their place. It was he who into Adam's breathed the breath of life. And when Adam fell, he covered him in an act of grace. Yes, with garments of skin, he covered Adam and his wife. And he remains watchful over the sons of men. Those who fear him, he will reward with tender care. Someday he promises he will come to us again and take us to himself forever. We shall be there. Our third thought today, he sinned yet more. Verses 31 through 35. Verse 31. These next four verses are so interesting to me. Here we go. Verse 31. Now the flax and the barley were struck for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud. Interestingly, it notes the flax and then the barley and yet it then notes the characteristics of the barley and then the flax. There is a reversing of the order in the objects as they're described. This exact same pattern is going to be seen again in just a few verses. This verse has certainly been provided for us to know not just the devastation of the plague, but to know the timing of it. First, in the devastation is the crops of flax and barley, okay? This tells us that the time is somewhere between the end of January and the beginning of March. Most likely, it's in the month of February, Flax is grown in order to make linen garments. The people wore them. The priests had the purest of linen garments, and even the mummies were swathed in linen. To lose the annual crop of flax would be comparable to the South of America losing its entire crop of cotton. The word for flax here is the word pista. It's used only four times in the Bible, twice here and twice in Isaiah, where it is also translated as wick. Pishta comes from the word pishte, which means linen. In this, you can see how the flax makes the linen, which is also used as a wick. And then you have your next crop, which is barley or siora. It's the second crop, which is noted as being destroyed. It was grown for the same purposes that it's grown for today, as food for animals, as part of the Egyptian beer making process, and as a source of making lower quality bread. There's also another reason why these crops are highlighted. It is to give us a look into a picture of the state of Egypt, the spiritual state of Egypt. Barley is known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance, all right? The root of the word seara or barley, is sear, or hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things. For example, the goat in Leviticus is known as the sin offering because it is a hairy goat and it's known as Sa'ir, very similar to Siora. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. And then you have in Numbers chapter six, there's a type of person known as a Nazarite. This is someone who has made a vow or consecrated himself to the Lord. During the time of that vow, they were never to cut their hair. Samson was a Nazarite from birth as were Samuel and John the Baptist. They're all Nazarites. Paul may have taken a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. The hair on their head was a reminder of their state, just as the hairy goat sin offering was a reminder of sin. The destruction of the barley then is being tied to Pharaoh's awareness and acknowledgement of his sin that he has committed, and yet his soon to commit more sin. His awareness of sin is destroyed just as the crop of barley is being destroyed. And the flax, which is used to make garments, represents the people's nakedness in their sin before the Lord. This can be seen many times in the Bible, but I'll give you one right from Revelation 3, verse 18, where Jesus says, for the people to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes out, that you may see. He has both stripped away their awareness and he has stripped away their ability to cover themselves. That's why these crops are being noted in this way. And finally, the word for bud concerning the flax is used only this one time in the entire Bible. It's the word gibol. It comes from the word gabia, which means cup. Thus, the term bud or some translations will say bloom because it's understood to be a shape like a cup. And if you look at a picture of the uh, flower on this particular crop, it looks like a cup. Verse 32, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck for they are late crops. The two unharmed grains are wheat and spelt. The King James Version has rye instead of spelt. Have to tell you that is wrong. Rye is a grain that has never been grown in Egypt. The word for wheat here is chita. It comes from the word chanat, which means, believe it or not, to make spicy or to embalm somebody. It has a picture there for us to see. Wheat is considered the finest and the most valuable of grains in all of the Bible. Jesus used wheat to represent himself in John 12, verse 24. And it's also the wheat harvest which pictures the church age. And then you have the word kusamet, which is spelt, which comes from kasam, which means to trim. It's a picture of the uh, crops, you know, the trimmed crop. That word is used only twice in the entire Bible and both of those occasions are in Ezekiel when it's speaking of the trimmed hair of the priests during the millennial reign to come. The spelt is a crop very similar to wheat and it closely resembles it. Finally, the word for late here is a fill. This comes from a word indicating dark or hidden, okay? And so it can be conjectured that these crops had been planted but they had not yet sprouted. In other words, they were hidden from the plague. Now, what do you think that's picturing? Because these crops are mentioned here and not again in the coming plagues, it is asking us to think on why they were mentioned. If I were to surmise, they, like the other grains, are given as pictures. The wheat and the spelt picture those in Revelation who are saved and who enter the millennial reign of Christ, either by rapture or by being protected through the tribulation period. There are those who are a part of the first resurrection, which is noted in Revelation 20, verse 5. And there are also those who survive through the tribulation period. Of the first, it is explicitly noted in Revelation 25, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The four grains are specifically mentioned and there is a purpose for it. The pattern fits and it is in line with the other uses of these grains, which are found in the Bible. So I do believe these pictures are why they're noted in the Exodus account, because you don't see them referred to at any other time all the way through, except this one plague. God is giving us a picture of what he's going to do in redemptive history. He's gonna take away the awareness of sin of the people in the tribulation period. he's gonna show that they're utterly naked before him without being able to cover themselves because of their sin. And then the other two crops are showing the people that are righteous before the Lord who are going to be kept safe either through rapture or tribulation. It's a wonderful picture God is giving us in this seventh plague. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain was not poured on the earth. Without fear of being pummeled by the hail, being zapped by the lightning or catching a sniffle from the rain, which has not been mentioned until this point, Moses went out from Pharaoh and out from the city before spreading his hands out to the Lord. But when he did, the land became calm once again the rain was not mentioned before because it wasn't a direct part of the event which was considered the plague the hail the noise and the fire from the sky were the plague the rain was only an associated part of what occurred but by noting it now it is an added proof of the first hand nature of the eyewitness account all right god is giving us these little details to confirm that his word is actually true It's also the first time in the Bible that the word rain is mentioned in the noun form. Up to this point, it's only been used as a verb. Verse 34, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. Now in the previous verse, it mentioned the thunder, the hail, and then the rain. Now it turns around and it highlights what was said by noting the rain, the hail, and the thunder. It is an often repeated pattern in the Bible where reverse repetition is used. In this, guess what? Pharaoh is mentioned smack dab in the middle of the series. Thunder, hail, rain, Pharaoh. Rain, hail, thunder. Isn't that interesting? Immediately following this, it says that he sinned yet more by hardening his heart. This is a theme which will run throughout the entire Bible. The Lord prevails in the challenge either directly or through his mediator, and yet there is no change in the foe. Moses acted, and heaven was opened, and then it was shut. Elijah prayed, and the heavens were shut, and then they were opened. And the two witnesses of Revelation, they'll have the power to do the same. But time and time again, like Pharaoh, there are those who reject what the Lord does, and they further harden their hearts to him. In fact, Adam Clark notes that the conjunctions in this verse used here, he says, often signify a bare permission from which it is plain that the words should have been read God suffered the heart of Pharaoh to be hardened. He has continued to passively work on this most obstinate fellow in order to meet his purposes. And yet there is more than just a hardening of the heart which is mentioned. It is that this in itself is sin because the hardening leads to a refusal to fulfill what his mouth has spoken. In this he not only lies to Moses but to the Lord whom Moses represents. And the result of this is our final verse of the day. Verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was greater this time because he was more moved by the plague than any before. The more movement to submit and allow release of Israel required a greater swing in the pendulum to once again uh, deny their release. Excuse me, I got a little word word uh my mouth got a little messed up there anyway but uh because sin is involved in this decision it cannot be that the lord caused it now remember that sin is involved in this so you cannot say that the lord actively hardened pharaoh's heart sin is involved he did not cause it anyone and there are scholars all over the world that try to ascribe these hardening actions of pharaoh to the direct work of the lord And when they do, they have to ascribe Pharaoh's sin to the hand of the Lord as well. Rather, the Lord is prompted. The Lord is allowed, but Pharaoh is responsible. What the Lord had said would happen at the beginning has come about exactly as he spoke. Pharaoh has seen the judgments and he has likewise been granted mercies which accompanied them. And yet he has continued to stubbornly fight against what has happened. Matthew Henry says this about it. Those that are not bettered by judgments and mercies commonly become worse. And so it is with Pharaoh. The children of Israel will have to wait a little bit longer for their deliverance from Egypt. However, this to them is probably a vacation, if you think about it. With Egypt being destroyed by the plagues, they surely haven't had time to worry about forcing greater burdens on the Israelites. Instead, Israel has been safe and they've been secure in the land of Goshen waiting as the time draws near when they will see their release from the bondage of egypt time and time again so far the false gods of egypt have been shown for what they truly are the lord has magnified himself and he has brought egypt to its knees but all of this could have been avoided rather than being forced to our knees the lord would ask us to willingly submit to him but either way it's going to happen the bible tells us that in philippians chapter 2 It says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Be wise and discerning. Bow the knee willingly to the Lord who created you and loves you enough to have sent his own son to die for you that you might be reconciled to him. Let me tell you what you need to know for this to happen. All right? The Bible shows us in these stories and all the way through the Bible that there's a problem. There's a disconnect between us and God, and that is sin. We have it in us, and because of that, God cannot fellowship with us. But he was willing to take care of the problem himself because there's nothing we can do about it. If we try to take care of the problem, it doesn't do anything because the sin was committed in the past, and we're over here. We can't buy God off. Everything came from his hand. And therefore, the remedy must come from his hand as well. And what did he do? He sent his son from the eternal realm to come into our present and finite realm and to live the life that you and I cannot exist. And he did it without any sin of his own because he was born of a woman, but not of a man. So he inherited none of Adam's sin. He was qualified to take care of our sin debt. And then he had to prove that he could do it. And he did it. He lived that whole law of Moses the standard of God perfectly, and at the end of his life, he gave up his life on the cross of Calvary, and there is in the law a provision where you can have one thing take the punishment of another. That's called substitution. Jesus Christ becomes our substitution if we will put our faith in him. This is what God asks us to do by a mere act of faith and by nothing else. Nothing else can bring us reconciliation with God except belief that God has done it. If you will receive that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for you, God says that he will forgive you, and that he will seal you with this Holy Spirit as a guarantee that you can never lose your salvation, never. You are saved for all eternity because of the work of Jesus Christ. So I would ask that you have never done that, that you would today call on him and ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you and to purify you, and he will, and you will be saved, and you will be taken out at the rapture whenever that wonderful day is coming, Because after that, we're going to have the world devolve into what we're seeing in these plagues. These are pictures of what is coming in the future. One nation was judged. The whole world will be judged. One group of people was kept secure. Another group of people will be kept secure. You want to be on that heavenly highway because you do not want to endure what is coming on this earth. And I believe it's coming very soon. But it's the Lord's timing. We'll wait on him. Our closing verse today is from Psalm 119. It's the 137th verse. It says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Next week is Exodus 10. It's verses 1 through 11. It's a plague which God has focused until it is done. It's the plague of locust, part one. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Okay, I got a poem based on the verses that we looked at today. This is entitled, The Lord is Righteous. Then the Lord said to Moses, So we understand, Stretch out toward heaven your hand, that there may be hail in all of Egypt the land, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field, throughout the land of Egypt, in order to make Pharaoh yield. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. It must have been a terrifying sight and a horrifying sound. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it, in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This time you would think surely Pharaoh would submit. Then the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field from the greatest to the least. Only in the land of Goshen there was no travail where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. I now understand the scope of my crime. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thunderings and hail in the land for it is enough. I will let you go willingly and you shall no longer stay, stay no longer, please understand. So Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will no more hail be. Be assured of the truth of this word, that you may know that to the Lord belongs the earth, everywhere that man may trod. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and in bud was the flax. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are lake crops. They were immune to the attacks. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth according to his word. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart again. He and his servants, his sin only increased. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go. And the Lord had spoke as the Lord had spoken by Moses. This is what transpired as we now know. The Lord has dealt fairly with Pharaoh, whose heart was hard and obstinate. He would not let Israel go. And so the Lord brought plagues to make Pharaoh submit. And the Lord will deal in like manner with us when we put up false gods there in our heart, instead of acknowledging his son, the Lord Jesus, instead of putting away sin and making a new start. So let us call out to the Lord, each one of us, softening our hearts to him and bowing the knee. Let us acknowledge Christ, the Lord, who is Jesus. Let our faith be so strong that the whole world can see. And yes, we praise you, O glorious Jesus. We praise you, and to you alone we give honor and glory, for it is you who have done such wondrous things for us. Thank you for the cross, the resurrection, your gospel story. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for getting me through that sermon. I've got something in the back of my throat today which has just been pestering me, so I thank you for that. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful pictures in this story that you've given us. Surely, I believe in a rapture because we've seen it several times already in Genesis and in early Exodus, and there's even a hint of it here in this story as well. And I pray that that day will be soon, but as long as you keep us here, we will endure. We will keep our eyes focused on you and our hearts and our minds geared towards you. And I would hope that every person here would take every chance possible, every chance available, to tell other people about Jesus because the time is drawing to a close and uh, uh, your, your plan of redemption is coming to an end, at least in this dispensation. So give us wise minds and discerning hearts to, uh, to know the times that we live in and to use them wisely. Lord, thank you for the people that are here. We do pray for those that aren't here that are having their trials and their troubles and uh, pray for uh, uh, safe travels for uh, the bridges as they head back today to uh, North Carolina. Thank you for all the people that watch online and uh, via YouTube and the other ways that uh, the word has gone out. We thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We uh, commit the Lord's table to you in just a moment. And We thank you for the opportunity to take it. How good you are to us to allow us to participate in the cross of Jesus in this way. We love you and we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We... Uh, Get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. And there in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, we read these words from the hand of Paul. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have given a blessing over this as well. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body Love, Lord. Jesus <clears throat> <coughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Lord, Help us to learn the lesson of that one verse That our hands and our palms are important to you That when we come to you in petition and in prayer That they are to be clean, pure, and undefiled Keep us from coming to you with blood on our hands Or a wicked heart And uh, should we come that way Help us to come asking for that to be purified first And then to come to you with our petitions And our praises and our prayers Lord, forgive us because we're weak, we're fallible we, we just are prone to error and we're prone to anger and bitterness and all of the things that are part of our human condition and you do understand that because you united in the womb of Mary oh God you came to be a man Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior so you can sympathize with us and you can empathize with us we thank you for that and we thank you for what you did by going to the cross so that we could be reconciled to you for all eternity What a gift and what a joy it is to take this Lord's table week by week and to think on that. How good you are to us. How good you are to us. All praise to you, Lord God Almighty. All praise to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.